on the record on news talk Yes, this is News Talk here and go to he with you until one o'clock. The show is on the record. If you want to contact the programme, 53106, it will cost you 30 cents. Or as always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy with me in studio today, uh, picking their way through today's Sunday papers. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV3, just back from Belfast. Uh, Shona Murray, special correspondent with INM. And John Isle, head of communications with Good Body. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Kieran. Good morning. Uh, happy Father's Day and to John. Yes. Happy Father's yeah, thank Day. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks. And to my own dad. And you can say it's your and, night, Gav. And indeed also to my dad. <laughs> all right. Okay. We're all, we're all <laughs> in on behalf. It's you, Kieran. <laughs> Thanks very and much, Shauna. Thank you very much. Uh, before we get into anything, I'll, I'll just run through the uh, the main stories, make it the front pages. The Sunday Independent leads with Fine Gael's top secret poll on election. Let Leo lead on slogan revealed in research. We'll come back to that, I'm sure, a little bit later on. The Sunday Business Post revealed central banks' fears on states' cash for visa scheme. In Investors receive visas when funds have not launched. Fianna Fáil say the scheme is shrouded in secrecy. The Sunday Times, Ireland named the empty nest capital of Europe. At least 70% of people in the country are living in under-occupied dwellings. Uh, this comes in the same week that the Social Democrats uh, suggested that there should be incentives for people to downsize uh, from their big drafty old homes to let son and daughter into them, move into small apartments in town. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday, ministers Minister faces revolt led by Kate O'Connell. Owen Murphy clashes with arch rival over Metro and Dublin 6 Heartland. Uh, Kate O'Connell is angry about the proposed Dublin Metro uh, route the overland route that's proposed to go through uh, their political heartland. Uh, those are the stories on the front pages, back pages, a uh, lot of rugby and uh, World Cup action as well. And after one o'clock, as always, we're going to be touching base with the lads from off the ball uh, about the latest uh, from all of that and as well from the world of Gated Games. Two big games in the Munster Championship kicking, uh, kicking off, as I'd say, throw in at two o'clock today. Uh, but I want to come back to uh, Mary Lou MacDonald. People would have heard the uh, news headlines there. She obviously addressed the Ardesh last night. Here's a a little bit more of her speech with a message to the main parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. To those who are on an agenda to exclude us, I invite them to wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> to realise that Irish political life is no longer dictated by them. It's no longer their way or the highway because we are here and we are equal. Yeah, that was Mary Lou speaking last night. Uh, Gavin, you were there. Yes, thank you, for name, thank you for name-checking that I was in Belfast and not mentioning that Shona's going to the far more exotic Switzerland, literally directly from the studio. And, uh, always not more exotic though, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your destinations or just Switzerland is always more exotic than Belfast? My destinations. <laughs> more exotic by all accounts. Um, uh, my hot take, I thought it was a uh, it was a fine speech. It was really, given that it was her first, uh, you know, it's inverted commas, traditional Ordesh's leader because the only other Ordesh speech she has given was the one in which she had only just been newly elected. So, um, it was, it was a, the first time, indeed, the Chucky Law speech, uh, for which there was no repeat mm. this time. She did improvise the lines up the Republic and Fublock the Boo, but didn't go quite that far. Um, I thought it was uh, it was interesting that if, effectively, because it was her first time doing it, it had to be a whistle-stop tour of all the hot-button issues that they wanted to do. She had to extend the hand of friendship or olive branch or clenched fist of solidarity to individual groups, and she did a fairly whistle-stop tour of going around all of them. Uh, the only people who could feel slighted were the DUP, but that's hardly much of a surprise because they were never really going to be holding out much of an olive branch there. Mm. Um, what I thought was was interesting about it, and this isn't anything as personal to, to Mary Lou Macdonald at all, um, but um, Sinn Féin usually have a, a habit of, of alternating their audition between north and south of the border. 
And it was the first time that they've been north of the border in the post-Jerry Adams era. And it seemed like the attendance was just a little bit down. It was the first time at any leader speech at any Ordesha I can remember in which there was a large chunk of seats which simply just hadn't been open to people to go to uh, because they didn't want the crowd to be so sparsely uh, filled out in the waterfront hall. Now granted, the Belfast waterfront has a capacity of 2,200 people so it would take quite a few people to fill in there anyway but you would think that if Sinn Féin had booked a venue like that it was because they expected that they would have over 2,000 people in at the the concluding speech Uh, and it just didn't seem to have the the crowd in the same sort of raptures as Gerry Adams did. Now of course when was it ever going to? Gerry Adams was there for 35 years basically the, the party and himself had become so entangled it was difficult to divorce one from the other and it will take time for anyone to build it up to that level but I just thought it was very interesting that although they're, uh, Mary Lou seems to be held obviously in great esteem uh, by many of the Sinn Féin uh, rank and file that she maybe perhaps isn't loved to the same degree yet as Gerry Adams was. I doubt many people were claiming this Sinn Féin Shinners are just all Croatia or uh, Nigerian fans they were they were all at that did you ask anyone but why it was maybe so empty? No I actually didn't get much of a chance because uh, as soon as the, uh, the the leader speech had wrapped up it was dispersing time and everyone uh, was going home so there wasn't much of a chance to try and sound out why that was the case but certainly uh, people were I was up in the very top tier which is where I, I uh, anticipated all the media were going to be and some people actually took uh, photographs of me from the ground level looking up and going God Gavin Roy looks very so they were more interested in taking photos of you <laughs> than Mary Lou Well they were looking up at me going saying? God you look very lonely up there but uh, you know there won't be, <laughs> spare seat, won't be a spare seat in the house now in an hour and a half's time and when an hour and a half's time came around there was still an entire tier of seats still empty which I just thought was was very unusual I don't know whether that was something that Sinn Féin had really factored into their, their calculations You'd think that they'd, they'd get uh, 2,000 people in to, to hear Mary Lou their first time north of the border You know it was interesting um, I heard sort of just a few clips of it but one of the things that she, one of the lines that she delivered it reminded me of that time when uh, Melania Trump was uh, delivered most of Al- Michelle Obama's speech at the Republican National Convention because if you listen to the lines from Mary Lou MacDonald it sounds exactly like something Leo Varadkar has said Yes, Hugh you O'Connor know, made this point but he said if you read the speech take out every reference to Sinn Féin and put in Fine Gael or yeah, it, or it could anything, be a Leo speech If you just read the words Shin, um, say Fine Gael or blank will deliver a budget for those who struggle to make ends meet despite getting up early and working hard every day for those those who do everything possible to, to better their lives. So it's essentially the same address uh, that Fine Gael would have given. And it's actually, so I think that um, you can just see that move towards the centre, the sort of the middle classes that Sinn Féin has been sort of inching towards for some time now, but I think it's maybe hurtling towards at this stage. Yeah, is this a continuing coming together of those two parties? Is that what we saw, John, last well, night? Well, I, I think what I found interesting about what she's saying is is similar to what Shona has, has said there, this borrowing uh, the rhetoric on the one hand, but also making explicit reference to the two party leaders that she'll have to do business with, which I took to be sort of a little bit needy, right? So she's mentioning her competitors and saying, well, if they think they don't have to talk to me, they have another thing coming, they'll have to talk to me because the people are about to give us a mandate. I think it's much stronger to come out and say, we expect to be in a position to form a part of the next government. Instead of saying, Michal Martin, and Leo Varadkar are going to have to negotiate with me. I just think what you're doing then is positioning those two men as the real power brokers and the ones who are making the decisions and Sinn Féin is sort of scratching on the door, crying to get in. Gavin, how much, like, I know that the empty seats, they'll come up with some sort of excuse for the empty seats, but... Uh, no, and, I, I and maybe it's superficial to read too much into it as well, yeah, in fairness. But, but how much of a challenge is kind of winning over northern Sinn Féin going to be for Mary Lou because I suppose look there was, there was the predicted outrage at the Chucky Garlaw line mm. but then I suppose maybe some more cynical analysts said look that was thrown in very with calculation that you know that there yeah. is that essentially Sinn Féin is to a large extent two different parties that northern Sinn Féin is different from southern Sinn Féin 
they would be a little, maybe not suspicious, but circumspect of Mary Lou and that this was a kind of a, a little nod to them. There wasn't that last night. There was the empty seats. Is this going to be a continuing thing? Uh, I don't know. Well, well, continuing thing, of course, you can only tell when you begin to have more and more events and you see whether those empty seats are still a traditional thing or whether they become uh, much more of a, an ongoing um, prevalent concern. It was always going to be very difficult for Mary Lou to take over from someone who has been there and moulded the party in his own image, like Jerry Adams. I think mo- most people would agree with your assessment that by and large, for the last couple of decades, they've re- always really been uh, on the face of a two separate parties and Jerry Adams was the only you know overlap in the Venn diagram that was able to keep the whole thing together. And there will always be, not suspicious, but they will always just take a certain amount of time for, um, you know, working class people from the west sides of Belfast who um, don't feel like they have much socially in common with someone from from Dublin who went to a private school and who now, you know, is represents the uh, particular cachet that she does. Um, What's, what's very interesting about the, the leader speech I thought last night and it reflects a, a broader challenge that Sinn Féin are now going to have is that if they do want to start chasing middle class votes it's not even a north versus south thing it's can you still... Uh, feel like a comfortable vehicle for working class people who who real her whole politics is really identified on class struggle national mm. struggle if then you're actually going to be ebbing away from actively looking for middle for working class votes and now seeking the sympathies of middle class people people who don't consider themselves to be working class you know two income households who feel relatively comfortable but would still like to have a little bit more money in their pockets at the end of the month um, and whether you can actually is their working class base and their their voter population there so locked in that eventually they can go unattended to while they go chasing middle class votes? I think that that's like the real um, the real social transition that Sinn Fein is in the middle of, and that'll be I think the real challenge for Mary Lou in the next year or two. There is loads of coverage in the papers. Uh, Justine McCarthy, Sinn Fein backs government on abortion. Kevin Doyle, Mary Lou hits back over no tarnish to vow. McDonald tells Ardesh that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will have to talk to her following next election. Uh, Hugh O'Connell as well in the Business Post, page two. McDonald pitches party as the real left alternative, says the book stops with Taoiseach over housing crisis. And there's a big interview the, with the her. The other thing is, Pat Tobin, obviously, we know, and, you know, Carl Nolan, two of the Sinn Fein TDs who were against the, uh, yeah. the removal of the Eighth Amendment. Mm. Interesting, well, obviously, what we'll, we'll have to figure out whether or not they're going to vote against the party when the legislation comes around. But also, particularly when it comes to Pat Tobin, he's an incredible, he got 25% of the vote in his constituency. Yeah as well so he's in a really important seat uh, a very secure seat for Sinn Féin but will he will, is his future going to be within the party who knows I mean he won't vote um, I don't think um, in favour of this legislation What's no, the discipline? I, I, what, I, ha- what is well, the it's another, it'd be, it's, well he's been already suspended for three months the first he'd, time he had, a, he had a six month suspension six the months, first sorry, time it, which yeah. then means that the Sinn Féin is a bit of a quandary because you have to be seen to escalate the punishment because mm. if it's a second defence a second time that he would have broken a party whip on a subject like this mm. then it would have to be at least six months, if not greater, and then that poses the question of: Will it be p- available to, to to run in the well, election? Yeah, is is he potentially suspended from membership by the time that comes around? Uh, interestingly, I didn't think he was in the queue yesterday to speak uh, when the the guillotine was drawn on that debate about uh, giving members a free vote. There were still forty members lined up at the side of the hall waiting to speak. I don't think he was one of them. Um, but what I did think was very interesting is that one of the only five people who did speak in favour of a free vote uh, was a an ordinary Sinn Fein member from Pader Tabin's branch in Navan who said that and. He didn't mention Tabine by name, but he said that they had already lost long-standing volunteers and comrades and people who would happily get out in in driving rain to put up posters on a lamppost. And they'd already lost lots of people like that. And the concern was that if they continued then to wed themselves to this position of, um, you know, the public have voted yes, we have to have this binary position. We can't, you know, at least facilitate uh, freedom of conscience in, in Parliament terms. Yeah. 
that uh, they would potentially not only lose all of those people, but obviously lose uh, pro-life voters who make that question their their number one thing at the ballot box that they were well, unnecessarily every, every making themselves a cold house. Some, would be facing something like that. But actually, it probably Sinn Féin, though, as an all-island party, see, it's awkward because in the north, they are more pro-life than they are Sinn Féin voters than... Uh, then, and when that, that party member talking about it if you look at the breakdown of where they've lost people north of the border they've lost proportionately an awful lot more over this issue like say Joe Brawley's parents is kind of a ho- high profile example of people who've kind of fled the party mm. uh, over I this, think it's this a bro- stance in the Republic It's a broader issue as well because I remember talking to Pat Tobin about this and um, uh, you know because they're one of the analysis or one of the criticisms that people have about Sinn Féin as a party is that it doesn't tolerate dissent. You know, that there's very little, uh, I suppose there's you know, conversations at Ardèche's and then there's, there's votes. But within the party, the whip is very, very strictly applied. And, you know, the TDs, the MEPs, you know, we, you know from their briefing notes that they don't really engage in huge amount of discussion about it or like I suppose they don't, they're not really, they never object to taking par- party line. And Pat Tobin thought this might be one of the issues which would allow a bit, bit more conversation, a bit more open-mindedness within the party, but uh, clearly not. There is, uh, I suppose, related to all this, there is in the Sunday Times uh, political opinion polls, the state of the parties, there really isn't much change in any of them. Fine Gael mm. up one, Fianna Fáil up one, Sinn Féin no change, Labour no change, others down Sinn one. Fein Fáil with, uh, Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil with equal shares of vote now, 24% each, which means that, you know, at least in theory, they would be rumps of equal size in the next all, which does, going back to John's point, it makes it much more difficult to overlook a Sinn Féin block of TDs if you're trying to get to the magic number of 80 in the next all. Yeah, and satisfaction ratings actually with the government as well, 46%, that's up five. Uh, Leo Varadkar's up two. Mary Lou MacDonald, interestingly, 52%. Uh, no change. Micheál Martin up two. Brendan Howland down could, two. You, I can tell you what would definitely change uh, the um, satisfaction rating with Fine Gael or the uh, with Leo Varadkar is the list of slogans here in the front page that's, of right. that's really what we want to talk about Kevin Doyle, isn't it? <laughs> um, These are great. my colleague Kevin Doyle has an uh, exclusive about and what they're doing is um, obviously they've given him um, permission to print these and maybe test with the public some of these um, slogans and they are all diabolical I'd say <laughs> and, and they're, they're four of the worst slogans you could ever possibly Go imagine on, read them out for us okay let Leo lead on, which and I and also you know because Leo Riker himself isn't that type of oh. uh, you know uh, rip roaring leader anyway. He's not somebody that you would easily that's follow. Let Lamas lead on, and doesn't oh, Leo is, have a, a a picture of Lamas in mm-hmm. his he does, office? That's in the article yeah. as well. Yeah, the second one, yeah. securing our future. Um, which kind of sounds militaristic, really, almost. <laughs> and it's then anodyne, though, forward it? with Leo's team. I don't which even know what that means. And then, and then we have, yes. as, uh, as Gavin um, earlier described, this as the chastity belt slogan. <laughs> Prudence over promises. <laughs> That's Pascal's slogan, isn't it? That, Pascal came up with that, didn't well, he? Uh, perhaps, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Well, it does seem kind of slightly finogale. It's, it's very, it's just terribly boring. Um, and I suppose nobody can beat a lot more a uh, lot done more to do because I think that's one of the best slogans that we've had which one would you pick there John they're, they're, they're not great and look I, securing I, the our future one, is probably the securing best, our future is, is the least offensive of them let's put it that way but prudence over promises what that drives me nuts as someone who does a bit of copywriting himself that like it's it's a self undermining slogan you know so it's it's effectively saying if you hear a promise discount it at the outset right we're we're foregrounding our <laughs> dishonesty here but we're actually promising prudence at the same time. It's, you know, this strange sort of inverted way of talking. Believe only one promise, this one. Believe only one promise, this one, which is prudence, which nobody's excited about anyway. I think Shona called it earlier the austerity slogan, you know. So 
this look where we're, they're, they're poll testing this stuff obviously they're trying to come up with ways of connecting with the public and for me this is kind of fu- fundamentally gets at a, a problem Finnegale has always had which is that they don't really have a core identity they don't have a brand as such right and when you do have a brand it's 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 easier to come up with these slogans because you say well what do we really stand for here and most of your members should yeah. be able to in three four or five words come up with what you stand for and you can craft something reasonable out of that but finnegale is really a kind of a status quo party you know let's just preserve things as they are let's just kind of keep going if things are all right the thing that's interesting about the slogan prudence over promise as well of, of all of the four it's the one that's most defined relative to the opposition because that's the sort of slogan you come out with only if you're going to make your whole campaign about Fianna Fáil will promise you heaven and earth and they can't afford to do it we are the ones who are being prudent you can understand where that came from though because do you remember when they were during the last election they were talking about abandoning the USC and, and then also get heavy tax breaks and then they realised that actually you know the population of the voters didn't want to be, yeah. them to be to engage in sort of electioneering and, and you know generous promise for the sake of it so this is where this came from but it's just it's it's just terrible Gavin really the goal with any of these slogans is to have something utterly unremarkable that no one will notice isn't it you just don't want something that you'd be slagged over in, in which case securing our future is probably the winner of all of those because two yeah. of them are very you don't want uh, another keep the recovery going it just no. reminds me of securing way. our borders it yeah, just it yeah. kind of feeds into mm. this sort of anti-immigration rhetoric that we're hearing all throughout Europe and I suppose that might help actually because the slogan sounds good if, yeah. if those four are, are the four if they were the final four and there was no other ones in the running if two of them are very Leo centric then that could be hit and miss because you know Leo has quite high popula- popularity ratings but there are quite a lot of people who just do not like the man either so two of them would go out of the window immediately and then prudence over promises as John says it's almost self-defeating so something anodyne and unremarkable like securing our future the sort of thing you could happily yeah. see right. behind uh behind a t-shirt giving Steady she goes. whatever happened to Republic of Opportunity yeah I don't mm. know well look I, if any Finnegators are listening I'm glad we've set, we've decided what their slogan yeah, is we'll, we'll be, we'll be well, collecting we, our fee afterwards yeah. yes. I think we've decided that they should get back to the drawing board I think that's pretty much yeah, it probably um, look that that gets coverage in the, the Sunday Independent Kevin Doyle's the story as Shona mm-hmm. mentioned uh, on the front page and Jodie Corcoran has a bit of analysis of it as well inside the paper uh, another story that I mentioned it's on the front page Security Council is it? Uh, of, uh, we'll get to the Security Council <laughs> <laughs> don't worry Shona it's so eager is housing actually um, and Ethna Short I mentioned the front page story on the Sunday Times Ireland named the empty nest capital of Europe there's loads of other coverage in the papers uh, the times as well their editorial minister is worthy of is worthy of brickbats but also time to uh, tackle housing philip ryan the independent apartment owner set for property tax discount uh, the business post michael brennan letting agents to be made reveal landlords tax numbers to revenue uh, john the ethno shortles piece uh, uh, about the empty nesters i mentioned at the outset this is something that kind of came up during the week the social democrats roisin shortle uh, w- was out speaking about it saying look the the figure was particularly high in your in ireland in terms of how property is used we tax property on based on its value but not how it's used that maybe we should look to it moving to how property is used in terms of tax which made me think of the bedroom tax immediately in the uk oh. Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of ways of uh, of cracking this nut, actually. One way, obviously, obviously is property tax. Uh, I think about where my mother lives in New York. She pays over $7,000 a year um, in property taxes in, in her suburban New York house, which is 
um, admittedly far too big for her. You know, it's a house we all grew up in. She's willing to shoulder um, that price for now, but probably not forever, you know, as, as she moves into retirement. Perhaps property taxes is a way of doing that, but we all know how politically toxic it is to to really get punitive levels of property no tax. No government through. in Ireland no, could bring absolutely in a bedroom not. tax. But, but what we found in, in Good Body, actually, because we've looked a lot into this issue, um, both, you know, housing stock from the economic research point of view, but also in terms of wealth transfer. We did a, a report this year called Death and Taxes, which was mainly about inheritance and giving while living in, in Ireland. And we found, we found a couple of things in our original research there. One is that the population is getting wealthier. And I think you, there's a few articles in the paper today about property millionaires. The population is getting much wealthier. A lot of that is because of the increase in property values, but also the increase in employment and so forth. The wealth is concentrated at the top, but the population is also getting older. We're the youngest population in Europe now, but that's not going to last in the next 20 to 30 years. We're actually converging towards European averages, which means as we get uh, older and wealthier, that older population, which holds most of the wealth, over 65s -hmm. have a huge proportion of the wealth in this country, it's going to transfer down to the younger population through the natural process of things. People will die and leave their property as inheritance. And the constituency that is set to benefit most are the ones that were hit hardest in the crash. The people between the ages of, say, 35 and 50 right now are going to be the beneficiaries of that transfer. So there's a way in which this right. problem is going to sort just itself fits, out demographically, right? So so there's, there's that angle. And I don't mean to say, you know, we should all be excited that people die and leave their properties, but we're in a strange demographic don't be disappointed right either. <laughs> It's just that what we're looking at is a point in time view of 70% of these houses are underoccupied uh, and so forth. That won't be the same forever. It, in fact, in 20 years, I'd say that number is going to be very different and much closer to what the European average is. There's a sense as well, a little bit with this, um, and, and you get it as well when there's talk about converting shop fronts, that when the property, the housing crisis is is at the scale it is, that this is kind of chipping around the edges a little bit, is it? Yeah, but I suppose it's it's fine to look at all of these um, small marginal solutions. I mean, everything kind of has to move forward. You know, the, 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 one of the things that's probably obvious now in hindsight is that um, we were so busy dealing with the crisis in 2010, 2011, 2012, that we weren't really preparing for the massive rebound that we've had economically in the last five years. And one aspect of that economic rebound is a huge demand for housing because the population is still growing because of where we are demographically. We have largely young families here and immigrants are are coming either through foreign direct investment, which we explicitly encourage, or because it's seen as a sort of young growing, uh, young growing economy. It's, it's been one of the fastest growing in, in Europe for the last four or five years. And that attracts people. It attracts talent. And all of that is to the good in terms of growth. But growth puts pressure on infrastructure and housing. Uh, Gavin, Shona and John are going nowhere. <laughs> We're going to continue this short <laughs> discussion <laughs> after the yeah. break. On the record. On News Talk. John, that's John Isle telling me he read all the articles he was meant to say and he, even he, we know because he ticked all of them as he went through them uh, what a good student he is uh, that John Isle uh, Gavin Riley, and Shona Murray are with me in studio uh, we're looking through today's Sunday papers and I just want to wrap up what we were talking about before the break uh, John was talking about uh, housing and, and I suppose not ignoring small problems and small reforms even in the wake of kind of big crisis but uh, Gavin before we wrapped up on this I just wanted to briefly ask you why didn't Sinn Féin go ahead with that motion of no confidence um, in the housing minister officially speaking because they only have a finite number of uh, slots in the doll schedule for the next four weeks where they can put motions at their own discretion and I think that there's an understanding that they they want to 
put a motion in Owen Murphy at a time when it's most likely to pass. I suspect they may be waiting until the homeless figures go above 10,000 as well. Um, but also there is possibly the, the issue, although yesterday's debate was quite clear cut, uh, I suspect there is a concern within the party that if they were to result in a general election before there was any progress made on the abortion laws that they might find it a little bit more difficult to support. Um, so, or not to support, but to, to explain that on the doorsteps. So um, I suspect that there's a whole um, series of things. Uh, what was interesting about Mary Lou McDonald's speech last night is that although there was a mention of how um, underwhelming they saw mm. Murphy's performances being, that they immediately said, but the problem goes all the way to the top. Leo Varadkar has to carry the can for this. Yes. So they're immediately trying to depersonalise the issue, which I thought was interesting. All right, yeah, so Owen Murphy lives, the government lives to fight another day. Uh, look, EU immigration is a story that's a huge amount of attention in the papers today. We'll get on to it in one moment, but Sean, I know how a Cotterai story you had yourself in the Sunday Independent today. Oh, me? Bono. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so... Bono's he, forking out big for a concert. He, he, well, you know, Ireland is looking for this... Um, uh, seat, non-permanent seat of the Security Council in July. So Ireland has stiff competition between uh, Norway and Canada. Um, so uh, in, in order to sort of, I suppose, like, um, ramp up our efforts, Bono has gotten involved and he's going to be leading the charge and he's invited he um, a, a representative from every single country in the world to go to the U2 concert the night before and a, and a guest. Uh, U2 is going to be paying for it and at that stage he will be opening the curtain in, Ar- in for Ireland's bid. So on stage he'll be talking about you know, I've brought you all here. Please give your vote. Each country has two votes, so it's two out of three uh, to Ireland. And I suppose they, how could they refuse? Uh, Free who, ticket to the U2 concert. Who's he invited? He's invited every, delegates. every single US or ambassador to the United Nations uh, gets okay. to go with a guest alongside Mary Robinson, Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, and some of their selected guests. And then the next day at the UN in New York, you have. The whole of um, the outside area and inside is going to be decorated to, uh, as an Irish pavilion where there'll be lots of Irish music and members of the Defence Forces because, of course, we are, I think one of our major selling points will be our peacekeeping efforts over the last few decades. 60th anniversary this week it of looks, Ireland's first peacekeeping ex- Exactly. Mission. So that'll be, that will be part of it because, you see, things, with, with the competition that we have, Canada and Norway, Norway has such a huge age, aid budget, so... Yeah. And they, they would they actually be even larger than for, Irish for aid. Exactly. Want, basically, because they've got that enormous no, sovereign wealth. It's fund. also in yeah. NATO. It's probably going to get the NATO votes. Canada, um, also a friend, very friendly country under Justin Trudeau, as we know. Um, but Ireland hopes to get the some of the EU votes. But interestingly enough, it may not be able to rely on the UK because um, Canada is a member of the Commonwealth. Uh, and, you know, so Norway and the Queen, they are very related to their monarchs. So... The All UK right, may okay. not be voting for us, obviously, and then not to mention the fact that Anglo-Irish relations have been really okay. uh, quite at a, well, at a quite low we, ebb. We'll we'll remember that come Eurovision. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they, you that's know, what I was going to say. That they, they all love their monarchs, but you know, we also have Bono, which is uh, you know an army Bono of Bono bringing everyone no to has. the United Nations to the uh, to the to the U two concert. How could yeah, they say no to there us you then? Have it. Bono is our and queen. I know U two fans are very right on, but would you be a bit annoyed if you'd you know travelled possibly from possibly from around the world to go and see U two in Madison Square? Garden and then sit through like a PowerPoint presentation in favour of Ireland joining the security council. Oh, uh, there is. He always, anyway. he always no, I mean, bores yeah. the arse off you with something worthy. He does. Boring. He it's does. All very uh, look, we mentioned the defence forces uh, and that anniversary this week, and actually, a former member of the defence forces, Fergal Purcell, former government uh, press secretary as well, is going to be in studio with me in about half an hour's time. Uh, but I mentioned EU immigration, huge amount of coverage mm. in the papers, as I said. Uh, Sunday Independent writing about Spain reports nine hundred thirty. 
43 migrants saved from the Med as it awaits the arrival of the Aquarius. Paddy Agnew as well writing about the Aquarius in the Independent. The Times editorial, May and Merkel on the verge of political breakdown. Uh, Andrew Byrne in the Times, Merkel in Asylum, Standoff. Uh, and Matthew Campbell as well, again about the Aquarius. Valencia hands lifeline to migrants cast off by Italy. Uh, Shona, this is like this has been a, a crisis now for several years. Um, it's maybe it's surprising it hasn't become more, more of a political crisis before now, but it certainly has become. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it's that time of year as well because you have a lot more uh, migrants trying to take those d- dangerous efforts to move from whether whether it's Syria or Africa across the seas because the seas are a lot calmer. So it's going to always emerge around this time of year. But um, again, we have this right wing government in Italy which promised to curb, um, you know, migration uh, in, into the into Italy. Italy and Greece are the two countries really in the EU that have actually taken most of the burden for migration and re- the refugee crisis and you can understand I suppose maybe some Italians feeling that the EU has abandoned it when you look at our countries like Ireland we're so far removed we wouldn't be a, an immediate destination for any refugees to come because we're not close to to Africa or or to the Middle East um, and so but in particular we have this huge standoff that's taking place between Angela Merkel and Horst Seehofer who's our interior minister he wants to apply very strictly the uh, what's called the Dublin regulation which essentially says that any refugee that whatever uh, country you end up in you first arrive in is where you have to um, you know basically be based but what we know is that the 95% of refugees want to go to either Germany or Sweden most of them are trying to get into Germany because the systems are much stronger in, and then what you have is a lot of people already have families there so the Germans feel obliged to keep them in um, so this actually could threaten the act- the coalition so Angela Merkel could actually find herself out of a job which is so serious because all roads lead back to what happens in the next couple of weeks in June. We're going to have a huge standoff at the next European Council meeting where Ireland wants to ensure that Brexit is top of the agenda and it's going to be far removed from the agenda because if you look at now the consensus around immigration, it's so populist and so right wing. It's hard to see how the EU is not is going to be able to uh, you know deal with this unscathed. You've got Hungary, you've got Italy, you've got now uh, Germany and various other countries who Poland who are who have serious problems when it comes to immigration and the they really moved well, toward they are, yes Leo Riker's friend Sebastian Kurtz exactly he, you know the far right even accused him of stealing some of their refugee uh, policies so it's a real problem it's a, it's actually it could really destroy the European Union I mean it's already fragmented over this issue but you've actually much much more growing resent uh, over immigration and refugee policies uh, right now John, that that kind of brings us on to some of the other other coverage in the papers, which is about what threat this poses to the mm. EU. Niall Ferguson in the Times, rise of populism shows the EU melting pot is about to bubble over. And specifically, he's writing in it about immigration as well and how, how that's led to it. And Dan O'Brien, I suppose, slightly tangential, but in the same area, critics of globalisation are barking up the wrong tree. The real, real danger is a reversal of openness. I think Dan O'Brien makes a good point and it, and it links back in to this issue around immigration, um, I think, quite nicely. Um, this I- immigration crisis reminds me a lot of the, the sovereign debt crisis that we had um, back in 2012. And one of the problems there was that the, the structure of the euro um, couldn't resolve a certain contradiction at the centre of European Union economic policy which was that having a common currency without common fiscal policy would lead to all of these imbalances between the center and the periphery. And you see this with immigration as well, right? So certain countries on the periphery are, are bearing the burden of the immigration crisis. Um, countries at the center, like Germany, actually have the power to do something about this by creating an EU-wide 
uh, policy on mm. immigration, which would resettle and redistribute and get buy-in for everybody. But I think much like uh, the opposition to sovereign bonds and a common fiscal policy in Europe, that will never happen. So we'll be dealing with this this contradiction. But there's a false narrative at the heart of it, which is that Europe is being overwhelmed mm. by, by immigrants. Why do not Germany do it? Why won't they? Because is it internal politics? There's internal politics, the, but also East Germany. Will, basically, old East Germany won't set it, won't do it. But as with the sovereign bond crisis, Germany realizes we have the fiscal power to solve the euro crisis, but we don't want to give up the national economic sovereignty required uh, to to have a common fiscal policy with basket cases like Greece or Ireland. Right? That was essentially the argument they made, and it's the same again now. Which which is, sure, we we could fix this problem. But it would also mean surrendering a little bit of our sovereignty over immigration to the crazy Italians, right? So the, the, I'm caricaturing a little bit, but I think that's what's going on. But there are, what, 3 million refugees um, in in Europe at the moment mm. out of 500 million people. Like yeah. It's less than half a percent. It's a very small increase in the number of people, but they're just very visible, right? So everyone's uh, worked up about it. But it, what scares me about what's happening in Germany right now is that the solutions will be restrictive. And it comes down to a question about what kind of of a European Union we want to have. Do we want to have one that's that's fearful and deglobalizing as as uh, Dan O'Brien talks about, right? That like we want the free movement of capital, right? We want money to move across borders. We want trade across borders. But the minute labor moves across borders, we get very upset, right? Labor in the form of people. When people follow the money, follow the opportunities, um, and, and and the, the irony of all this is we have an acute labor shortage in, in Europe. We have an aging population and not enough people to help make economies like Italy and, and Germany grow sustainably. I think also that you know, you're dead right, John. The narrative is is incredibly worrying, seeing as, you know, a lot, one of the reasons why people were concerned about Sef- Syrian refugees was, of course, that they would be some uh, would be infiltrated by groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda. That hasn't happened. And when you when you look at uh, Angela Merkel, she vigorously defends her policy her humanitarian policy Letting one million refugees into a country which actually could re- relatively easily absorb them. In fact, in fact, they have. When you, I was in Munich actually during the week in Bavaria, and um, most people there that I spoke to said that the refugees there have been absorbed very well because the systems are in place. You know, they're learning German, uh, they're young people, they're being trained up. But still, at the same time, it, uh, there's this there's this narrative that refugees are bad, that they're going to somehow infiltrate, you know, Christian democratic countries. Uh, you've got that awful rhetoric coming from people like Victor. Orban who said that he wouldn't take any Muslim refugees in and it's just been very difficult for any um, European leader to neutralise that even though Angela Merkel like I said has defended her policies you still have the growth of the AFD um, you have uh, as we saw Sebastian Kurz in, in Austria and every other the growth of any of the pol- political parties appears to be when they speak against uh, migration wasn't and refugees and w- it's incredibly worrying Wasn't and Macron's election not supposed to be this great boost But for it wasn't the, though the because if you look about it you know the, this is, this is the interesting thing. Thirty-five percent of the vote. Exactly. Not only did she did she win thirty-three percent of the vote. Sorry, the, she being Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen. Yeah. And the and the first round, she did incredibly well. He didn't do that well. He he managed to beat um, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen um, and um, Jean Luc Mélenchon, who was the far left candidate. But only just. In fact, when you look back, uh, Sarkozy and Hollande did much better in the first rounds. So he was basically just uh, anyone but Le Pen. But thirty-three percent is actually huge. And actually, the problem is 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 this. Um, Angela Merkel, if she loses her position, and we know it's diminishing in terms of her role as the leader of the free world, the de facto leader of the free world, even though she's not on the the UN Security Council, um, Macron isn't a necessarily successor because actually all his stuff about reunifying uh, Europe and reintegrating Europe and a stronger Europe, that is not actually um, having much traction. In fact, you know, so he doesn't appear like he's making 
any um, improvements on either France or uh, glory when it comes to engaging with Donald Trump on the Paris Climate Accord or the Iran deal. So, you know, there's this, 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 this vacuum again in leadership in, in Europe. Gavin, is it full federalisation or bust? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question and one in which there is no glib 10 second answer. Um, <laughs> what I think is very interesting about all of this, especially when it comes to, um, to, to possibly should, Mer- Merkel being deposed and potentially that being then the, this grand fragmentation of the EU, um, it's a reminder that all politics is local because you would have thought that if there was going to be any threat to Angela Merkel's uh, tenancy in Germany that it would be uh, from her external coalition partners mm-hmm. the Social Democrats with whom she's a very uneasy relationship they didn't want to be in government at all they're there simply because there was no other way to have any kind of administration but this threat has come from her own Bavarian sister party who are so entwined in her own that most people think of them as being one and the same Merkel's party effectively does not exist in Bavaria and it uses this other party as its sort of uh, a proxy wing but it is that party that's, that's like going like the Healy Rays as <laughs> <laughs> of sorts. Um, but why all politics is local? Firstly, because there's a state election in Bavaria this coming uh, September or October, and that obviously has quite profound uh, imp- impacts there. And because of everywhere in Germany, it's Bavaria that is really on the front line of a refugee crisis. Because if you have a busload of refugees who have arrived somewhere in the, the Mediterranean Rim and they say, bring me to Germany, the first place that they are dropped off is Bavaria, and that's where they are. And there's probably a sense among the rest of Germany, or a sense within Bavaria, that the rest of Germany is closeted off from this. That you don't see the refugees going the whole way up as far as Berlin but they're definitely around Munich It's true uh, but also Bavaria is one of the strongest economies in the world actually never mind in Germany and in actual fact Bavaria has been able to uh, absorb the refugees because they still have manufacturing they've uh, you know tech companies there they so so again it's that rhetoric well is it it really problematic or can Germany actually just take on those refugees and is it not uh, a boost to the economy because we know the population in Germany is is quite aged Shona (laughs) straight out of the studio (laughs) (laughs) as you can hear Uh, John and Gavin are going nowhere the UK Prime Minister Theresa May she's been on Andrew Marr on BBC this morning speaking about Brexit and the Irish border want to hear what she had to say after this quick break On the Record On News Talk Yes this is News Talk and this is On the Record Kieran Goodhue with you until one o'clock, as I mentioned earlier, Fergal Purcell, former government press secretary, is going to be joining me in studio in about 20 minutes time talking about well, his time uh, in his job with uh, Enda Kenny, Enda Kenny's legacy, how Leo Varadkar has been doing, the strategic communications unit and all that. He was around for the, the, the setup and witnessed its demise uh, from outside. Uh, so it'll be interesting to hear uh, his view on all of that. Uh, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV3, is still with me in studio, as is John Isle, head of communications with good buddy Shona Murray, had to run and catch a flight after the exotic clients of Switzerland just in time to see them lose to Brazil this evening in the World Cup <laughs> yeah exactly are you World Cup engrossed Gav? Uh, I know I have I, I wish I were uh, it's one of those things you really know you're getting old when you can't actually build your daily schedule around the games that are on TV yes, anymore you didn't watch 10 hours of football yesterday no, no. I was in Belfast uh, alas at the Sinn Féin Nordesh uh, and I missed Spain and Portugal on Friday night albeit only because I was at Liam Gallagher and Malahide which was excellent and I missed uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia on Thursday because it was during office hours but hopefully managed to catch a few today you didn't get stuck on that famous dart out of that Liam Gallagher. No, I was I was very uh, smashed the windows a, a very, to get off. Very sensible commuter actually, who was uh, soberly driving my own way home, knowing that I had to be in Belfast uh, yesterday morning. But um, sensational gig, like seeing Oasis in their mid nineties pomp. It was like being back at Nebworth, that kind of thing. Uh, John, when your phone rings, it's the former Soviet anthem that goes off. I think. You're really engrossed in this, aren't That's you? Right. Yes, yeah, big fan of Vladimir Putin as well. Now I have been watching a lot of the World Cup uh, with my son, who's who's a soccer fanatic. 
and especially enjoyed the Spain Portugal match, which was just that's the really, only match I've actually watched uh, in full. It was one brilliant. of the most memorable memorable games uh, I've ever seen. Now we're we're pulling for Spain because uh, the U.S. and Ireland neither of them qualified. We have a lot of Spanish family, and I had a report from my brother that my nephew, who, who who's Spanish, was so enthralled by Cristiano Ronaldo that he was cheering for him when he scored the the free kick at the end against Spain. So that gives you an indication of the quality of that match. Uh, it was I got a Spanish kid cheering for Portugal. Yeah, look, as Gavin mentioned, look, Brazil. Uh, playing tonight a lot of people's favourites uh, for the tournament we're going to be chatting to uh, Richie Richie McCormack from Off the Ball in about uh, half an hour's time as well looking forward to that game and Shane Stapleton as well is going to join me in studio uh, to talk about the two games in the Munster Hurling Championship it today It would be really like the GAA to roll out an absolute classic between Clare and Limerick today to distract from the World Cup wouldn't it? Yeah it would Yeah, they, they orchestrated the entire yes, Munster yeah. Championship to fall <laughs> this way exactly yeah. to, just to annoy FIFA people FIFA have nothing on them <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned before the break that uh, Theresa May British Prime Minister was on Andrew Marr, the Andrew Marr Show on BBC this morning, uh, talking about Brexit and the Irish border. Here's a little bit of that exchange. We will be continuing to cooperate with countries in Europe because we're not, we're leaving the EU, we're not leaving Europe. But also this gives us opportunities for the future. There's a really, I believe, a real bright future for the UK outside the European Union and it's this government that's going to deliver it. How important is it to you that there is no frictional, friction-driven border between the two parts of Ireland, between Northern Ireland and the Republic? It is, Im- it is important for the people of Northern Ireland that we do not see a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. The way I would put it, it's about people being able to lead their lives, carry on leading their lives okay, as, so they it's, do, it's a crucial as they do Again, today. You're... But it's, it, can I just explain why? It's, it's about people, but it's also really important about the United Kingdom mm. and about this government working for all parts of the United Kingdom. What we've seen with, from the European Commission are some ideas, one idea in particular, that would effectively put a border down which would separate off Northern Ireland from Great Britain. That's, That's not, not right. That's not acceptable. We're it's one not acceptable United to have a hard kingdom. border on the island of Ireland either, you've said. That, yes, that's crucial. Absolutely. Again, your foreign secretary says this is allowing the tail to wag the dog. And he says it's absurd, beyond belief, that we're allowing the tail to wag the dog in this way. We're allowing the whole of our agenda to be dictated by this folly. That's your foreign secretary. The issue of the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland is an important element in the talks that we're undertaking with the European Union. But of course, it is one part of a very big picture because as a country, we're ambitious for the Uh, partnership that we can develop with the European Union on the economy. Most focus is on the economy, but also on security matters as well. We want to be able to continue to cooperate with uh, uh, countries inside Europe in the best interests of the UK. And I think the cooperation in the best interests of the UK will also be in the interests of the EU. When Andrew Marr references Boris Johnson saying we're allowing uh, the entire Brexit process to be dictated by this folly. I like to think he's talking about the partition of Ireland <laughs> as, as the folly. You know, this folly back in the 1920s. Yeah. Why did we do it? Why did, why did the Normans invade in 1169? <laughs> it just would have saved us so much grief. Yeah, uh, there is still a sense of Gavin of, of having your cake and eating it. Oh, isn't this, it? it's 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 so disheartening to to listen to it. I hadn't caught that before. We just heard it now, and it's just the same guff as two years ago this idea of oh we want to make it work we want to have as little uh, you know impact as possible we want to be a, a great mercantile trading nation we want to be able to free to reach our own trading policies and to trade as and when we like we want to have all of our cake and, and eat it as you say um, and actually what's what's been really interesting about the last week with the uh, first of all with um, the parliament beginning to assert itself during the week and then last week when David Davis very nearly pulled the whole plug is that you know, by any objective measure, Theresa May is possibly the weakest prime minister 
there's you know certainly in the last 100 years that there's been in the UK and because she has been so delicately trying to keep the whole uh, house of cards from falling apart um, I heard a really good analogy during the week that she's wearing so many nooses around her neck one from the DUP or one from the Brexiteers one from the Remainers one from the the common marketeers that ultimately one of those nooses is is going to hang her and she's done such a, a really remarkable job of trying to keep the whole thing on the road. The consequence of that is that no decisions have been made at all. You still see her there with real banalities about, you know, we want to have all these aspirations and really nothing concrete as to how they want to give effect to those aspirations, how they want to reconcile leaving a customs union with not having customs checks, you know, at the very least. Uh, and the fact that she has prioritised her own existence above actually getting a deal means that we are all the closer to uh, not having a deal in two weeks, not having a deal in three months, having a cliff edge Brexit, all because she has prioritised her own salary uh, over the future of the country. John, there was much optimism during the week after she survived those various House of Commons votes uh, by reaching out to, to Remainers to a large extent that a soft Brexit was now more likely. Uh, Colin Murphy as well, writing in the, in the Business Post, say inching back towards a softer Brexit um, is the headline on his piece. Others pointing out, mm, maybe don't count your chickens before they're hatched, which camp to you and I, were you, you slightly more optimistic this no week? I'm absolutely not optimistic uh, and I mean this isn't based on me being a great political analyst or anything but just listening to her speak that the fact that she has no concrete proposal whatsoever and is completely reluctant to put her cards on the table suggests to me that she's hoping somebody else solves the problem for her um, it, it looks like Boris Johnson is eager to solve that problem but I think Theresa May is holding out for some smart person in Brussels to solve it ironically enough everything about Brexit and how it's been conducted right from uh, David Cameron's um, putting it into the Conservative Party platform right through to the vote and the the handling um, of the uh, exit strategy since that vote suggests that um, England is quite happy to sacrifice the interests of Northern Ireland to that kind of little Englander nativist tendency, which is what drove Brexit in the first place, mm. right? It was not supported in Scotland. It was not supported in Northern Ireland. It was largely supported by by English people um, who are numerically superior in the United Kingdom, so they carried the vote. So I think eventually political reality for Theresa May and the Conservative Party uh, is going to require them to satisfy that constituency. And that, to me, means that Northern Ireland is going to get left out and that we might be facing a hard border. Again, I say that not as a, an expert political analyst, but just watching everything that has actually happened as opposed to the, the flabby aspirations we heard in that quote. Yeah, same question to you then, Gavin. Did you go along with that idea, that notion during the week that perhaps Theresa May was kind of reversing the United Kingdom back into a soft Brexit? Uh, no, I think because now that the uh, effectively all those nooses have have tightened on her, and ultimately having a soft Brexit requires her to put it up to some of the uh, fringe. Um, more extreme elements within albeit her cabinet or her parliament um, that ultimately she's going to have to put somebody's nose out of joint in order to get a deal uh, she's going to have to face down the the Boris Johnsons or the Jacob Rees-Moggs or alternatively face down her Chancellor Philip Hammond uh, or face down some of the other people in her cabinet the Boris Johnson of the world um, so by consistently trying to walk this tightrope of trying to keep the whole thing on side you you never actually make any concrete proposals even the very idea and I remember you know was it a little over two weeks ago when Britain published its latest um, idea to try and give effect to the so-called yeah. backstop and it was this time limited thing which is never going to fly and which was shot down almost immediately as it rose um, and yet everyone around Europe was almost obliged to say well it's positive that they've put something on the table but you think of how much they laboured 
and weeks and, and months and all this talk about 10 mile buffer zones and yeah. all these hypothetical kites being flown in the telegraph um, and they finally get a piece of something out to say right this is our proposal and basically within about 24 hours we've gone that's no good I, like I, you're not going to get a soft Brexit unless Britain can come up with proposals which are acceptable and if it takes them three weeks or three months almost to pull out something which gets shot down within hours I, there's I, no prospect I thought all you need to know about that was uh, a, a comment from the a spokesperson for, for, for the Prime Minister who said that I think what we need to focus on today is the fact that we have an agreed cabinet policy as in that, that <laughs> yes. was the achievement was that after yes. all those months they finally agreed the, the policy uh, which something. was we want to have a trade deal this thing can't be infinite but we can't even decide amongst oh, yeah. ourselves when we're going to draw the line on it the spokesperson didn't say it was good policy they just suggested <laughs> look at least we've agreed on something uh, look on that note Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV3 and John Isle who's head of communications with Good Body thank you both very much and thank you as well to Shona Murray on her way to the airport as we speak special correspondent with INM stay with us back in a moment